TFL podcast. We're back. So excited for this one. A um, couple of my American friends that uh, that played the indoor game. Uh, Want to make sure I introduce who I think is the preeminent voice of lacrosse today, uh, along with Paul Carcaterra. But uh, Quint Kesnick, thanks for joining me. Appreciate having you here. Thanks, Steve. Uh, excited to uh, kind of throw throw it back. Uh, what a 20, 25 years or so. Uh, Twenty. Uh, 25 years. And uh, the illustrious Paul Canabine, who, along with Jamie Hanford, probably the two best face-off players that, that set the stage for, for face-off battles uh, uh, that, that you know, were, were unbelievable in, in the early days of, of our indoor game. Um, Paul Canabine, coach of Stevenson Lacrosse, welcome, uh, welcome to the TFL podcast. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having us. I'm excited to be on and share some stories. And uh, it's been a long time. I had to kind of go back in the memory about how, how far ago. I think I only had about 20 concussions during that time. So uh, we should, I, I had to kind of bang the head around a little bit to try to remember uh, some of the things like getting stitches in the getting stitches on the bench or uh, getting knocked out and not missing a shift. Because, oh, you're fine. You, you, you very Canadian of you. Back out there. Stitches oh, on the bench. Very on. Canadian of you. <laughs> I just want to – I brought a prop because I was, I've was i been moving and whatnot, cleaning out a storage facility. I found this. I'm putting it in my office now. Was the 1998 championship the greatest game of all time? Look at that. Yeah, I, I, think, I think it was the greatest fourth quarter and overtime of all time. But uh, I'm not sure Bill Tierney shares that. Was it 9-1 <laughs> or 8-2? We, I, I, we went to commercial break, and I remember saying to Leaf, like, Leaf, what are we going to do? Dude, this game's a dog. We got we got to start filling here. What are we going to talk about? I think it was eight one or nine eight eight two at that stage or something. Before yeah, it, it was thirteen, 13 to two. Going into the bar, it was a ten like, goal comeback. I was in a bar with like Dave Petromala. I think I remember somewhere like in Ro we might have had a game. We might have had a game up in Rochester or something. I remember in a bar watching that game. Like all of a sudden it was like. Oh, the game's over, 8-1, 8-2, no big deal. All of a sudden, then everybody's panicking all of a sudden, 8-3, 8-4, 8-5. It's like, what is going on? Rodney, Rodney Tapp, Tapp, that's what, that's went, what went on. Yeah. Rodney, Rodney Tapp. Tapp. And they had to bring in um, Wade. I think Wade had to come in and take a few face-offs to help because uh, Jacobs wasn't winning them. Peter right? Jacobs, Jacobs, absolutely. Uh, myself and John Grant Jr. started that game, but we didn't finish that game. Ultimately, we were on the bench by halftime pouting. And uh, it's 13 to two through the third quarter. And, uh, and I had Junior on the show early on with Casey Powell. And it was kind of funny because they were talking about how that momentum was going on either side of the benches, which was a fun dynamic. But uh, I got to tell you, uh, we were cheerleaders by the end of it. Uh, and Junior and I still talk about that and, and uh, talk about us pouting. I had a great tournament, but ultimately had to shut off and, uh, and couldn't play because, you know, Gary Gate was better. Right. Just a little, just a tad, right? I still remember, wasn't that like a John Tavares one more to Tommy Marichek to tie, but John shot it or something oh. like that, like a breakaway late and he had to go and Tommy's like wide open, but Tavares shot it and like Sal saved it. That was it. It was like Hit really close or something, right? That was regulation. That was the end of regulation. That was regulation. There you go. Yep, that's right. Stevie Toll had a, had a, I mean, almost breakaway in overtime to win it. And man, greatest game ever. But yeah, Lee Felsmo. Hey. Quint, does Lee Felsmo belong in the National Lacrosse League Hall of Fame? Oh, NLL Hall of Fame? Absolutely. I mean, doesn't you know, he? I think so. I, I saw Leaf two weeks ago for the first time in 15 years. Uh, no kidding. He, he, yeah, I did. I hadn't talked to him, I hadn't emailed him. Uh, I saw his son when I was out at Stanford. I communicate with his daughter every now and then. Uh, and and he, he wants to get in the National, he wants to get in the U.S. Hall lacks Hall of Fame. And, he and deserves he to be, man. Like, like if you think about – lacrosse does not get broadcast if not for Lee Felsmo. No, he, he gave me a list. Like we talked about a list of about 15 firsts. You know, first, you know, director of broadcasting, these national broadcasts, the world games. Like, not yeah. only was he – people just thought he was the announcer. He actually put together the whole thing. He packaged it. He sold it to HTS. He sold it to MSG up in New York. So behind the scenes, he was doing a lot more. The announcing was just like a little cherry on the top. And that's how well, he, the knuckleheads like going. Beaner and I, the knuckleheads like Beaner yeah. and I just thought he, he coined the phrase rip and rope. And we just that thought was that he's was got, dumb. He's got rope. Is it rip and rope or he's got rope? Oh, yeah. uh, he's got rope, rip and rope, whatever. Rope, and we thought it. it was dumb, but nobody understands the background of Lee Felsmo and, and intertwined in the broadcast history of sports. I mean, uh, Quint, you could probably – 
you know, attribute your career in, and an amazing career it is with ESPN and, and a lot of other sports to, to getting involved with Leaf early on, right? Well, 100%. I mean, uh, I, I don't know how – I mean, I was doing some Hopkins radio, and then it, that segued to HTS, but then we crossed paths in, in uh, MI, you know, the MILL game of the week on ESPN2. They needed an extra announcer. So they brought me and Steve Mason in for a, a tryout in Philly. And I knew all the players, like, blindly, I, you know, because I'd been watching the game. And so I got the job, and that was a Philly game at Boston in the old Boston Garden. And from that, they're like, oh, why don't you join our crew with Christy Lee and Leaf? And every year we have a couple games that, we, you know, we need some extra folks. So that, that's how I ended up working with Leaf full-time and then working for his show. The Toyota Lacrosse Weekly Show was decades ahead of uh, oh, yeah. trends. Leaf was a, a true innovator, and I, I think a lot of times he was so far ahead of the curve. He was so much of an innovator and an entrepreneur that people didn't quite get what he was trying to do. And you look back at it now, and you're like, wow, that guy was he was brilliant. He was smart. He was sharp. Christy Lee knew all the players too, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but he, he was like the first guy to do it, right? There's like nobody else on, the, on doing it, man. He's oh, like the guy you, lacrosse. You thought of – He's thought of Leaf like he's the guy covering lacrosse. He's the one you got to talk to Leaf. He knows everything. You know, he was the guy. I remember growing up watching that. Like that's Leaf. Wow, that's really cool, <laughs> right? Yeah, it was no it uh, Chris Fritz the Eagle League, which was basically a, a league that was based around events in Philadelphia. Get, uh, you know, led to the MILL, I guess, when they realized if we have an event in Philly, a couple in Buffalo. Next thing you know, we can build a league around it. Leaf, Leaf was very involved with that right from the start. Yeah, no question. He was deaf. Innovator is a great word. He, he, man, you look back and, and we did a show, Washington Power Weekly show that, that you were involved in, that he was involved. That was, I mean, there's no other NLL team, you know, that, I mean, a bunch of NLL teams are doing that now, uh, streaming wise, right? Using social media as their platform. But that was, we were broadcasting that weekly and, and uh, it, unfortunately, nobody watched it and, and nobody ever came to our games. But, you know, we put a great show out. Yeah, we had to you know, use a lot. We when, had to when, use a lot of the beeps because of Quink, uh, because of uh, Darius Kilgore. <laughs> <laughs> and wow. Leaf, Leaf was selling ads too. I mean, he was out there, you know, dealing with it with the lacrosse sponsors. Obviously, Toyota was good to him. But then the non-endemics. You know, he was always trying to get, uh, you know, the, the Coca-Colas, the Home Depots, and Bud Light. Uh, Bush Bud Light. Bud Light yeah. yeah, yeah. And Bush. Paul Canabine, who put the stick in your hand for the first time? We put my first lacrosse stick in my hand, uh, a red magnum with a silver shaft and brown leathers. Uh, that it was wasn't a Woody? Chris. It wasn't huh? a Woody? It wasn't, it wasn't a, Woody? a Woody. So, no, it was a, that was my first magnum. My brother Chris went to Syracuse. And so um, when he came back, like one, I think it was like 85, he came back, or 86, and he came back and had a stick for me and my brother. My brother got the blue magnum. I got the red magnum. And uh, that's how it kind of started. So and I didn't really start playing lacrosse until um, my first year playing. I was in uh, eighth grade. When I first started playing lacrosse, and the only reason I kind of faced off was because we had another big guy named Xavier Mockley who uh, was on the south team in my town, and I was on the north team, and nobody wanted to face off against him because he was bigger than everybody else. And I was like, I'll do it. And so I just ran out there. <laughs> I was like, I don't care. I'll, I'll face off against him. I didn't know what I was doing or anything. And uh, I went out there, and I won a face off. And you go, hey, go ahead, do it again. And I won another one, and that's how I started facing off. You know, that was as simple as that. So uh, – uh, my brother did it. It was great. And uh, my first time, I think, thrown with a stick, I damaged my Aunt Linda's car because he brought it to Thanksgiving in New Jersey, in Livingston, New Jersey. And I was outside throwing against the wall, and I pinged her car hard. So I had to kind of fess up to that. She wasn't happy. But, uh, but uh, that's when I started. So, yeah, I was a little red, a little red magnum. I still, I still think about that stick every once in a while now, uh, just how he started out, you know? Hey, Q, so – you grew up Long Island, right? Were you a little brother? Is that the obligatory story of a goaltender that, that was a little brother, got shoved in goal? Absolutely, 100%. They're eight and six years older than me. I'd watch from the window. They'd come inside and be crying. They're like, okay, come on out <laughs> into the goal, whether it was hockey in our driveway or in the backyard. That they put. Uh, we didn't have a chest protector. They taped up a Long Island Newsday newspaper and hung it around <laughs> my protector. That's awesome. They gave me a helmet. And a stick, and you know, so so I, I was lucky. Our town had a really good rec program uh, that it was started in the '70s that produced some some real players. It was cheap. It was just you, you played with your friends right from the start. Uh, Scott Hiller actually was was on my original rec team. His dad would, would drive him. His dad was at Hofstra, uh, 
And so we drive over to our town to play, and, and that was a good start. It was, uh, it was real wholesome. It was just natural. It was, again, you're playing with your friends. Yeah, some of that lost today in the club systems around the, the country and, and the pay-to-play process. And unfortunately, we need to get back to just my personal opinion, but we need to get back to community-level lacrosse and rec lacrosse as the start, as the entry level to get into our game is vitally important. It's really hurt lacrosse all across the country a little bit with that. Like in Long Island, all the club teams are starting to do events during schools and some programs are really struggling to even get kids. Like Baldwin's struggling to even get kids to field the team right now, for example. Wow. So, wow. so it's, really, it's really hurting it all together. And it's also putting parents, you know, you think about it in a really tough spot because you want your kids to play multiple sports, right? So you want to do that. Now you have to choose what sports to do over the summer. And can I go on vacation because this club team has got practice all week. I've got a tournament this week and i got to spend $2,000 to take into a, a tournament in Maryland. Now we can't go on vacation. You know, it's really hard the amount of monies that they're spending now on club teams. So I'm with Quinn. Quinn's talked about it a lot. Like rec lacrosse has to come back. My son, uh, we live in Seven Valleys, Pennsylvania. He plays rec lacrosse up here. You know, I mean, we make him do that. It's not great, but – He's playing it, you know, to do it better, to learn and do that way. And uh, I think that's better if you start getting back to the grassroots of it than going to more of the corporate vision because, you know, I think youth lacrosse is so corporate now. Well, the beauty yeah, of – Yeah, my mom uh, took 25 bucks, and all we needed was a stick. Our, our, yep. our rec program gave us everything else. They had the helmets, the gloves. I remember the first person I saw online was Greg Canella, who was four years older than me. He's a Limburg guy, he, you know, head coach at UMass. Now, I, I remember he was like – I must have been nervous because he says everything will be all right. And, and I, think, I, think, I think our moms were friends. So I think my mom said to his mom, like, I think Quinn's kind of nervous. So Greg comes over and puts his arm around me. I tell you what, like, Casey Powell, had this whole speed lacrosse platform where, you know, people play, it's three on three. Like, that's how we learned the game, right? Back, you know, back in the day when we started to play, it was backyard lacrosse, and it was with a tennis ball. It would, you know, sometimes with a lacrosse ball, it was a stick, and that was it. And you just played. And I know, watching my kid, who now is, you know, grown up and and is playing at the University of Delaware, you know, the backyard lacrosse that he played actually was the best lacrosse that he was playing and the most fun lacrosse and the joy on the face of a kid playing backyard lacrosse, man, so important. And Casey's got it nailed with speed lacrosse. No, I I mean, uh, the converse of that, Steve and and Paul, you know, my daughter's soon to be 11. She never had that, that playground, that backyard experience with friends or family members. Her first experience was a lacrosse camp at a nearby lacrosse uh, during the summer for a week, her patience is lacking. So she couldn't catch and throw well. It was 96 degrees. They made her go pee in, in an outdoor porta potty. She came home crying. She hasn't picked up a stick since. Yeah, uh, because, yeah. and, and again, lacrosse is not fun when you're throwing in line drills. Like we, we, didn't, we didn't fall in love with, with line drills or one-on-ones or sprints. or oh, no. No, our, <laughs> The coaches added the structure eventually. They added the discipline and the structure down the road. But we started again on the driveways in the backyards. Yeah. Cali BBQ is proud to be an official sponsor of your San Diego Seals. Buy our slow smoked barbecue at any Seals home game or online anytime at www.calibbq.media. So, hey, you guys walked into, uh, you know, an MILL locker room. In, in some time in the 90s. Beaner, tell me about your first experience walking into the Baltimore Thunder, uh, which you probably didn't have a locker room, but your first practice facility that you walked into. Tell me about that. Well, I mean, we were practicing down in, I think it was Dewburns Arena. That's where we used to practice down there. It's still there, right, Quint? Down there in uh, Canton, I think, down that direction. Yeah. And uh, we used to practice down there. But it was different for sure. You know, I came from, like, Loyola College. Okay, let's go and do this. And remember, like, Bush Marino and uh, Timmy Welsh and, and Ronnie Klausner. I mean, it was – and Lou and Lou and Gotti. You know, you had all these guys. that are these huge personalities. I mean, uh, I remember my first practice, I think Butch Marino was threatening me because I was playing too hard. He's like, stop it. What are you doing? <laughs> He's like sitting there. He goes, next time you're in the corner, I'm going to kick your ass. I go, oh, okay, all right, I'll, you know, I'll pass you the ball. You know, like, you know, all those guys, it was crazy. Jeff Jackson, I remember he was really good. But there's also Jeff some Jackson great guys, great. Brian Kronberger and Bobby Martino and uh, Timmy Horms and Jeff Clausden, you know, really good guys. I think uh, – but, uh, you know, it was a different atmosphere. You know, guys are just, you know, kind of showing up. Ronnie Clausen's got, like, his shirt off and can't stop talking for, 
you know, an hour. He's yelling at the coaches about things. I'm like, I don't know what's going on out here. This, <laughs> I just want to play some laps. Jeff <laughs> you know? so, Yeah, it was great. Tony Millen, you know, I mean, it was just it was just nuts to, you know, who we had. We had, the, we had a great field team. We weren't so good yeah. in the box. <laughs> Q, Q, I want to ask you because you, you had a unique experience. I mean, you came from an all-American goaltending background, you know, Hopkins, which is the storied program, the revered storied program of Johns Hopkins, an outdoor phenom, all-American goaltender, and you go decide to play defense for the Baltimore Thunder after being, you know, early on in your career, being, you know, a sideline reporter, and you decide to go do this. Like, like that was, I mean, the essence of, of our pro lacrosse is we were, were kind of all things, right? We were all trying to make a living doing something and uh, at the time, and lacrosse was just a supplement. But tell me why you, you, you jumped in to play defense it, you know it's a long story it's the first experience I was drafted by the Pittsburgh Bulls at Hopkins in like the third round as a goalie they didn't right. necessarily they didn't make they made they didn't make it easy I had no equipment I had no experience <laughs> and their leadership didn't really foster that so I never even showed up I never tried out nothing so here we are in 1995 the TV starts they put me down on the bench that was my first indoor game and I'm sitting there on the bench saying Holy shit! This is unbelievable. This is this is great. I mean, this is awesome. And at that stage, it was like, in no way in my mind would I ever play. These guys are crazy. They're big, fast, strong. I, you know, it's not my game, but wow, it's just fun. So at the same time, I joined the, the Baltimore Indoor Lacrosse League, that that fall league that they had down at Du Burns. Still going. Still, still going. going. Yeah, and, yeah, and that was a, that was a great experience where I could play field. I could compete. And gradually, I built some confidence to the point where when Dennis in 98 was like, yeah, we need guys at practice. Uh, we need to. So they, I show up at practice in 98, like no real equipment. They kicked the shit out of me. I can't catch because I'm so used to a goalie stick. I was weak. I was out of shape. I remember Jeff Clodston wow. on the last practices. Like Kip Folks used to just annihilate me. But then Clodston, the last practice, cross-checks me in the head. My helmet comes down, cuts my eyebrow. There's blood all over my face, and like Tucker calls practice. I remember walking out of there. I'm like, this is not going to be my last practice. What I am coming am back I next doing? year to try to get that mother. I'm getting closed. So most, so a lot of my motivation initially was to get distribution on a on a decent friend, Jeff Clodston, who was like my teammate in outdoor club. Uh, that is don't take, it, don't take it personally, Quint. That happened all the time. You get practice, you go after one guy, get, you get mad at one guy, we all went after him. Remember, like, poor Ricky Freed, we had him. He was on the team, and for some reason, somebody didn't like him, whatever the reason was, and, like, we're killing him. So, anytime the ball went near Ricky Freed, everybody ran to it, and the ball, and he'd get killed. But behind, we'd be fives on the board, and after practice, like, what do you guys are a bunch of jerks? I go, wasn't me, he told me. <laughs> <laughs> All the time. Uh, I, well, Gabby Rowe and I had a similar experience at a, at a wings training camp. We got into a fight when Gabby Rowe and I got into it, and, and he ends up like, the you know, it's over, right? Like, we just fought each other. We get separated. Gabby Rowe picks up my own helmet, and con and he's starting to come at me that he's going to hit me with the in the back of the head with the helmet, and we're all laughing. It's like, come on, man, it was over. But typically – um, not something American guys are used to being in that particular situation, and Canadian guys just had a longer background in it. Right, you're, you're right, absolutely right. You remember, like you're in the box, you get into a fight with somebody in a game, then after the game, they're like, "Hey, great throw, man! Want me to buy you a beer?" You're like, you "No, I hate you. Beer? I want to kill you. What are you talking about?" He's like, "No, man, let's get a beer. That was a great throw. You got me good. Look, hey, that's easy. Yeah. Let's go get a beer." I'm like, okay. <laughs> hey, Beaner, tell me about the tryout process because, like, you know, how did that get – how did the word get to you that you made the team and that you were now illustriously signed to a contract and were a pro athlete? Uh, I got drafted by – I think our, it was Russell was our general manager, uh, former judge and uh, in uh, Baltimore. He was the general manager of the Baltimore Thunder then, and I didn't even really know anything about the – the uh, the, M, uh, the M I L L the Mill or that whatever it was called during that period I didn't really know about it. Coach Cottle just called me up and told me you got drafted and call call Russell here he'll let you know and uh, he goes okay I called him and he's like yeah we have practice here kind of come on down and do it and uh, and um, kind of did that and it was really interesting is that it's really kind of like the the good old boys club really you know the guys who know they have spots on the team they're kind of doing their thing and they kind of know it uh, if you're a, if you're a nobody like me you really got to do something something special in order to make the team. So, you know, my goal is just to play as hard as I possibly could. And if I can make the team, 
awesome, you know, to do that. So, uh, but I was lucky enough to have, uh, I think Bill Durgel was on that team that year. Bill kind of knew me through Loyola and uh, was and uh, coached me at Loyola, knew about me. So he put a really good word in, for, I think, for me to make the team that year. And I was lucky enough to make it um, through that. But it's different. Like, I didn't know how to set pick and rolls. I didn't know how to play defense. You know, some guys jacking me in the head. And I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, this is defense, dude. Get, you're fine. You know, you, you don't know any of that. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's crazy. It's such on the, on the, on the fly uh, learning, but it, I can't, I really, for me, I love the box game. I love playing it. I love the toughness of it. I love that it was a different game than the field game. So when box season came, I loved it. You know, I had a ball playing in practice. Um, I always played hard in practice. I loved it. And so I really enjoyed the game. We picked it up rather quick, especially how to play defense, ground balls and all that kind of stuff. I love the transition. I thought that was the most fun of the part of the game to get out and run because most of the Canadian teams kind of played this, you know, they're playing the offense defense. So I was always lucky enough to get out and be able to run a little bit and uh, do that. Uh, but um, I also learned a lot of lessons on the fly. I remember like uh, Darius Kilgore killing me one time. I remember playing, uh, or playing um, he played for Buffalo, I believe. And all of a sudden Bobby Martino got, you know, cross-checked into the corner. And so I went in to help him out. He's starting to fight. And then I get pinned against the boards. I'm up like this. I can't move my arms. And a hand comes up my mask trying to face rake me. And so he does that. So instead of, like, letting him do that, I bit him, whoever it was. And then all of a sudden you're coming out, there's a guy going like this with his hand all hard. And I turn around, it's Darius Kilgore. Wrong I'm like, guy. oh, my God, the scariest guy in the world I just bit. And he's Wrong yelling guy. at me to the penalty box telling me how he's going to kick my butt next time I'm a, next time the door is open. And I'm a, I'm a rookie, and I go, I'm like, sorry, sorry. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm like, I, Generally – but generally, by the end of your career, you were known as a giant prick. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, pretty much. But pretty Q, much. like the game today, the influence of box lacrosse in the game today, and, and we don't talk a whole lot about about current events and, and all that fun stuff, but you see it all the time, I believe. Like box lacrosse is permeating throughout, even with the American kids that are beginning to play it and permeating throughout the, the, the college games specifically. Yeah, I mean the flow of the game and and the, the sets uh, for kids, it's great. There's there's five players in one ball. You get double the touches. You get double the shots. You get double the dodges. Double the defense. It's just a lot more reps instead of ten on ten standing on this giant field doing nothing. So it was good for me because I couldn't catch. So when the when the ball when I missed yeah. it, the ball hit the boards and I could get get it back without running <laughs> after it. That's my theory on why Americans are better athletes than Canadians. Canadians have better sticks. Because when, when they, they miss, miss it, it, the ball comes back easily, and but Americans have to go run to get it, so they end up having more athleticism. Uh, Paul, talk about the 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 face off. How the how is the face off different from you and field to box? Um, it was just uh, well the way they the uh, the guys you face off Canadian wild are just different. You know, they're all rake guys and and stuff like that, and and there was really no rules. You know, they were just like there's a little circle. They put the thing the ball the ball in. It was like a little circle. They put the ball down, and then they just blew the whistle. So there's really no rules to it at all. It's really more of a free-for-all. Uh, but um, but it was also very unique because when you turned around, you had somebody in your face. You know, you had to really be much smarter where you put the ball and put it out um, in order to do that. And winning a lot of face-offs for, like, in more American teams was very crucial when you played the game because, you know, the Canadian teams we played, like Toronto or, or um, whoever, Buffalo or Rochester's more Canadian-oriented, they were really good in the six-on-six six and scored – uh, a little more frequently. So we needed more possessions on the American side. So, but it was different. There's no doubt that, you know, how you put, you can put three guys back, you can put four guys back, one guy facing off the strategy in indoor was uh, interesting. I remember playing in an all-star game up in um, uh, some casino in Connecticut and uh, we're playing and uh, we only had like 11 <laughs> they, guys. They have show a team now. <laughs> a, a, some contract dispute. It was like 11 against 16 and we we're facing off and I was winning all the face. I remember Dougie Bartlett was the coach. God, I think he, he passed away, I believe. And, you know, I go down and the guy just cross checks me right in the head and I go back. And Bartlett just goes, sorry, we had to win one face off. You know I mean? <laughs> he just took me out. And I was like, all right, that's cool. Uh, <laughs> it's an all-star game, but I'll take, I'll take concussion 21. No big deal. <laughs> so keeping in the face off discussion and, and in the news recently this week, Q, what, what are your thoughts on the face off? Cause I know, I know Beaner has a lot of them. So we'll, we'll give you the chance well, to talk about more, it. Paul's more qualified to, to, talk about the tactics and the technique, you know, at Paul's era, there were guys who stayed on the field and actually played lacrosse. And, and I have a lot of respect for Jamie Hanford, Paul, Rodney Tack, uh, Kyle Harrison, Peter Jacobs. These are real lacrosse players. I, I, I love face-offs and I, and I love those guys and the impact that they can have on a game. I just don't like the guys who face off and run off the field 
and don't play any offense or any defense. And the same guys who use illegal equipment in like big team USA world championships and then are leaders of their position. I have an issue with that. I, I don't think that there's integrity. Uh, and look, I, I want to win as much as anybody else, but you got to know the example you're setting when, when you're that type of person. So I'm all for face-offs and I'm all for guys being really good at face-offs. I just want them to play lacrosse. Yeah, no, I, hey, good point. And, and we, obviously our careers, the three of our careers in this game has crossed paths with a number of players that, you know, on small NLL rosters, you couldn't have somebody that was just simply a FOGO that, uh, that you know, and, and Jamie Hanford's a good example. Paul, you're a great example, a better example than Jamie Hanford because he was a bit of an egg and spooner, but we had him on the show earlier and <laughs> Jay Jalbert skewered him about it. But at the end of the day, like Beaner could actually pick up the ball, go down and score. Jeff Snyder could actually pick up the ball. Yeah. And go down and score and and contribute and and was you know um, you didn't you didn't want Jeff on the field just because you didn't want Jeff on the field not because he wasn't a good lacrosse player just because you didn't like him but um, at the end of the day um, um, Beaner yeah, I know you, you have, have an opinion, opinion about, about faceoffs face but but, uh, yeah, but well you know the, the faceoff it's always going to be an issue you know coaches just can't help but get over it a little bit um, and it's come a long way uh, and I do agree with Quinn we'd love faceoff guys to do more. You know what I mean? I think they'd be great if they would stay on and do more. Now, my biggest beef is not with the rules necessarily. I, do, I don't think that the rules committee should be telling face-off guys how to hold their sticks. I don't think you tell goalies how to hold their sticks. You don't tell attackmen how to hold their sticks. You don't tell defensemen how to hold their sticks. You don't tell middies how to hold their sticks. You don't tell them how to do their jobs. You're not in the, no one in the rule book are you telling a goalie, this is how you do your job. There's nowhere in the book you tell middies or attack. You don't tell people how to shoot the ball in there, okay? So I don't think that the rules committee should be telling them how to do that. All right. But I do feel, and I've always said this, that the biggest deal is the sticks and the rules committee will not deal with the sticks. Sticks bend too much. They're not there. And it is an issue because these guys, I have a couple guys, they can't pick up the goddamn ball when it goes out. That's a problem. If you can't pick the ball up and that's a stick issue. And the rules committee is afraid of the manufacturers and just won't go. These are the sticks that need to be these qualifications. They can't bend like this. And I was having a and with this, and when these rules came out, I called Dave Petromala, who's on the IMCLA. He's the representative to the rules committee. And I go, David, and I was talking about this. He goes, well, Paul, there's a little thing between the referees and the face-off guys. They won't check their sticks because all their sticks are illegal. And I go, well, that's wrong. They shouldn't be using illegal sticks. Call them for it. Make them accountable for it. If they get called for a three-minute foul for an illegal stick, I guarantee you they won't go out there with another one because what their coach will say to them. Make them accountable for the rules. And we just won't do it. Instead of making people accountable for the rules or changing the sticks to help the rules out, we want to change the rules, right? And there's a big sentiment along Division I coaches, not as many as Division II and Division Three, is that they just want face-offs to be fast and fair. Now, face-offs never have been really fast. They've always been kind of tie-ups with that. But the face-offs have never been a fair thing either. It's a skill position, just like – Having John Grant Jr. is unfair. Nobody can guard him. Just like having um, you know, Sal Acasio as your goalie. It's unfair. Now we got to have a bigger goal to do this. But I so, do think there's a happy medium if you want these face-off guys to do that, and that's to take care of the sticks. If you take care of the sticks, I believe the face-offs will happen quicker. These guys can play multiple positions. But it's also upon the coaches, I think, if you want guys to play both ends of the field, like I did for a long time until I got too old to move, um, to make your guys do that, to put the guys out there, to put athletic guys to face off out there. Let them scrap for ground balls. Like Chris Flynn. I remember facing off against Chris Flynn all the time. Chris Flynn wasn't a great face-off guy per se, but he hounded you. He got after you all over the <laughs> field if you lost that ground ball. He made you he was a grinder winning that face-off. You know what I mean? So there's ways to do it without changing the rules. The coaches, and especially the Division One coaches, just want to change the rules to make it easier in what they do. And I think so, that's wrong. I think you should so change I, I have, make sense in that. I have two ways to face off that I, I don't think you, you'll agree with, but I want to try the pneumatic tube of roller rollerball that shoots the ball into play at, at two guys that are – and they just kick the shit out of each other to pick it up. Or the bubble hockey cool. where the ball drops from, like, way, way <laughs> over your head. Maybe, like, a drone, an Amazon drone drops the ball into play. I, those are my two great ideas for the face off. Was it, no, was it you know, like Battlestar Galactica or something like that? Was it like the big sport of Battlestar Galactica? They drop. It's it easier in indoor. You just drop it out of the scoreboard. <laughs> no. The yeah. old X10. Okay. Oh. Let's do yes. it. Yes, I love it. <laughs>
A quick break. This episode is sponsored by Manscaped.com. Manscaped is the only men's brand dedicated to below-the-waist grooming and hygiene. If you've been listening to our channel for a while, you know that we are big fans of Manscaped and their Perfect Package Essentials Kit, which is the world's finest all-in-one manscaping kit that makes manscaping safe and easy. And just when you think they've got it all figured out, they take it to the next level. I'm excited to be one of the first to confirm that after 18-plus months of research and development, the new Lawnmower 3.0 Waterproof Body Trimmer has just been released and comes with a ton of new upgrades. Get 20% off plus free shipping from your Perfect Package 3.0 purchase when you use promo code SEALS20 at manscaped.com. That's code SEALS20 for 20% off at manscaped.com. Now, back to the pod. So, if you could go back in the early MILL and maybe talk about players that some people might know or not know, and I know you've talked a lot about characters, but who would you put in the MILL Hall of Fame that maybe people have forgotten about? You, you know, one guy, I'll, I'll take that first. One guy I thought about that I remember playing against, I had a ton of respect for uh, doing it. He was a defensive player. That was Terry Bowen from Toronto. He was a big, yeah. like, six-foot-four guy. I remember, he guarded Gary Gate better than anybody. You know what I mean? He used to do an unbelievable job against him. I thought he was great about uh, great in that aspect doing that. And the other guy I thought about who was great was uh, – Billy Miller, who played for the, who played for um, uh, uh, Philadelphia Wings, right? I thought Hobart, Billy Miller was USA, always, an unbelievable, always an unbelievable player. Billy was the man. Q, how about you? Who who would you put in there? I mean, Jim Jim Veltman, in my eyes, for a lot of Americans, yeah. I'm not sure that he gets enough love, uh, whether it's field or indoor, for for whatever reason. But to play against him was the biggest learning experience of my life. I mean, that guy is the smartest player that I've ever encountered on a field the most nuanced in terms of getting ground balls, holding, uh, wrapping, the checks, blocking passes, defense, his ability to, to distribute the ball, uh, just just uh, an amazing talent. I have a great – He was, he, he was story. outstanding. I'm, my, my, bowling, well, my bowling story ties to what you were talking about earlier in that <laughs> fight, Beaner. Oh, okay? geez. So I, I, I take out the Toronto goalie. I mean, the first game of my life. I take out the well, Toronto goalie flag. Can we do a little background here first? Why this happened? Remember this? Yeah. Okay, so we'll go back. We're, right? we're beating Toronto like eighteen nine. We're killing them. Yeah. Gary's got like Gary's got like nine goals. Right, we're playing them the next night up in Toronto. He's doing backbreakers. He's scoring in all different ways. Right. There's like two minutes left in the game. Right. Two minutes left. It's about to end. Okay, this is good. You know, Toronto's not mad at us, really. We're all good. We're going to go up there tomorrow. We'll win again. This is going to be cool. You know, let's not do anything. We're kind of on the bench go. Let's not do anything to upset them. That's what gets me I started, never got that right? <laughs> Quinn never got that message. Paul, so Paul, Paul goes down Paul, the side, then Quinn picks it up. Go ahead, Quinn. Paul pulls this face off, like, right to me, okay? I scoop it up, and there's a parting of the Red Sea. I'm like, holy shit, it's just me and the goalie. So I go down. I mean, I've, this is my first shot of my life. Uh, I, I don't think I had ever scored in practice. And I, I hit the goalie in the thigh. The ball drops right at the top of the crease. Well, as an American, what do you do? You play the ball. I dive at it, try to <laughs> flick it past him. And I submarine. I think it was uh, Chris uh, uh, Dietrich, maybe. Dietrich Bob Watson. Watson. I submarine him. His legs go out. Next thing you know, I'm being kicked into the goal and mauled by five opponents. Okay? I'm in the net and being punched and kicked. Okay, somehow I squirrel my way out of there. Everybody's matched up, and I sneak up the near boards. Okay, I get He's up gone. The board. I, I sneak gone. up the board. There's no one to match. So I get up there. Tucker's on the, on the bench, standing on the bench. He goes, you, you get the F back in there. You started this. So I turn around, and guess who's there? Terry, Terry Bullen. Bullen. Terry Bullen. Terry, no one would square off with Terry Bullen. Okay, he's six foot four. He's double. He's double me. I remember he takes his hand, he puts it on my chest. I go, Terry, please, I'm sorry. I'm so, I said it's my first game. It was an accident. Uh, We're going to the penalty box, and they're like, "We'll see you. We'll see you all tomorrow night. You wait. Your teeth are done. Your teeth Chris are Hill. done. You're gonna knock them all out." Right. So, I do. Want, I want to point out the the end of the story is. The Toronto guys tell this all the time from the other side. And so I want to uh, – the end of the story is they go into the locker room and Terry Bullen says to his teammates, right, Gary Gate had just scored 10 goals in this game. 
And they lose by a ton, right? And Terry was supposed to be playing Gary. And Terry turns to his to turns to the locker room and he goes, What the fuck is wrong with you guys? He goes, I held my guy to ten. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it, it was it was absolutely absolutely classic yeah, we go out there the next night they beat us in overtime it was a crazy game there was like a thousand penalties up in the maple leaf gardens and yeah. the great part about maple leaf gardens then is that there's no a bench there's no they're not there's no box then right you just sat on the bench yeah. and behind you was a fan yeah. right and so i remember going around the bench and um, I got popped. I didn't see the guy coming. I forget what his name was. A small defenseman, really good in Toronto then. He, used to get, he hit me. I get like five – I get my whole top of my eye blows up. And so I'm on the he, bench. Yeah, I'm on the bench, and our trainer is like putting glue on me to sew my cut up, right? And a guy comes by and goes, hey, can you move? I got my beers. I want to get to my seat. Hey, like, <laughs> I'm getting glue. Like my, I'm bleeding all over the place. And he's sitting there telling me. And then I remember later in the game, Bullen is like the game's close and they're trying to get Gary out of it and they're scrapping. And so I'm back there as the ball goes the other way. So I jump in as well. And we all go to the penalty box, right? So there's no back to the penalty box either. It's you, the security <laughs> guard, the police Paul officer, fans. and the fans. And they're just screaming at you saying how they're going to kill you. I'm like, what is going on here? <laughs> life, life in the mill, right? It was fun. So Baltimore arena, Right. Talk about playing in the Baltimore arena, like different place. You know, I think it's called the Royal Farms now for those in Baltimore that remember it. But, you know, old barn. The barn? The smallest locker room in the history of, of organized sports. Except for Syracuse. If you ever played small. in the Syracuse building where you were banging your head on the sprinkler heads because the ceiling was so low. I mean, we, um, I mean, we actually drew pretty decently for that crowd. We had some good years there. We drew some pretty well. We always got some pretty good – Crowds down there. I didn't mind the barn, but it was you know it wasn't located in the best part of Baltimore. That's for sure. <laughs> it was, you it, ended it was up, interesting. You ended up staying with a team and going to Pittsburgh, Paul. And I I, <laughs> I seem to remember a story in Pittsburgh where for a promotion they had like strippers come in yeah. and and the strippers kind of went too far, right? Like and you're on yeah. the you're on the field in that process watching this. Just talk about that for a second. Somehow somebody came up with a good idea saying like, "Well, let's get these girls to dance on tables all game and then when we score a goal, Pittsburgh scores a goal, they'll take something off." They thought that was a good idea. And I was like, "Okay, and so the game's going on, like, okay, we have these, and it's a family culture. Hey, mom and dad, bring your kids. You know, this is great. We it have just doesn't happen ladies, at a Hopkins game. Right. It doesn't it's happen at, at Hopkins. At a box game, and we have these ladies on tables. I think there's four of them, two on each side, dancing. And just so it happens that we got our butts kicked that day. We're playing like Rochester. We only scored like four goals, like in the fourth quarter. We were getting killed for whatever reason. And they started just taking everything off. And everybody's, like, losing their mind. Everybody's watching them and not the game. And so they're down to, like, nothing on, and everybody's, like, all of a sudden, like, John Tucker's the coach is like, this probably isn't good. We're probably going to get a letter about this, you know? Yeah. So they were Somebody will down to nothing in a family thing. It was crazy. Like, like, who came up with the strippers taking things off as a good idea to draw people in? <laughs> a few years later, a few years later in Boston, they had, uh, they had a uh, – a lap dance competition on the mascot at halftime and it's like oh my god people come on like those so those are my two stories in the national lacrosse league when i go to board of governors wow. meetings and guys have ideas about game entertainment that we kind of go okay you just want to be a little careful with that anyway um wow. interesting stuff uh Fun, though. Fun. Hey, so Darius Kilgore, yeah, and, and Q, you were around him in a broadcast capacity when he was coaching the Washington Power, um, who yeah. I hired as when I was the present GM of the Washington Power, hired Darius Kilgore, who was, a, to me, was one of my most hated enemies as a player between the wings and the bandits rivalry. And I, I just thought he was such a fierce competitor that I wanted him on my side for a change. And so hired him as a, as a head coach. And Beaner, you played for him and Q, you were around him a lot, but to talk a little bit about Darius Kilgore in that capacity. Whew, that, you know, I, my initial, uh, being on that bench as a, as a uh, TV guy, I, I, I thought he was, he was missing a screw. I mean, to, to, <laughs> The stuff that I saw him Once do, uh, the, 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 
it, it was just a little off uh, in terms of the comparison, like how emotionally upset he would get and, and the damage that he could do to people uh, all while being a tremendous player. He was a really, really good player. And, and then when I played against him, I was always scared shitless of him. And I tried <laughs> to stay away from him as much as I could. One time I do remember I got him good. I submarined him. He went up and landed on his head. He was so – he came over to the bench. Thank God Hugh Donovan was sitting right next to me. <laughs> he was like, get away from him. I'm like, thank you, Hugh. But uh, – and then as a coach, I loved him as a coach when he was a Washington Power coach because he, he, there's a certain quality. There's a certain authentic quality that, that you recognize that he has that you want to be on his team, that you know how much he wants to win, that you know how honest he is, uh, how straightforward he is. There's no – agendas there's no there's no baggage there's no deception it's just like we're gonna win we're gonna play hard if that guy gets in our way we take him down foxhole factor right yeah the foxhole factor if you wanted to be in it with him because you knew his heart his whole heart was in it Darius is the only guy you had to worry more about after the game than the players it's like oh my god i gotta worry more about dennis socially than the players and he was a little he was a little off-key. There's a few stories you can talk about him off the field. But on the field, you know, when I first met Darius, I thought he was going to kick my butt because I bit him. And that's the first time I ever met him off the field. He was like, he's like, Paul, I've been waiting to meet you for a long time. He goes, I really respected you biting me. Nobody else would ever do that. I was like, okay, that's great. Just don't hurt me right now, please. Don't hurt me. But I always thought he was one of the smartest coaches I had, you know, in the box. You know, he was really kind of put guys in the right spot and motivated guys. And uh, did a lot of great things, you know. So um, I, I really liked him. He, you know, we had a tough, couple tough half times. Like if things didn't go well, he was not afraid to get up in people. You know, he really was able to do that. And get, I thought he got a lot of our teams. Our Washington Power teams were really good. And when we weren't playing really well, I thought he he picked his times to get on our case and picked our times not to do that. So I really respected him as a coach. Now, did he lose it at times? Um, maybe a little too much. Yeah, absolutely. At times that you would question what he was doing. But um, uh, I liked him. I do remember the – you probably remember that, Steve, when we played uh, uh, the Hugh Donovan candy fight and we started the game with the fight. I remember going out to the face-off yep. circle and Huntley's like, Beaner, come here, come here. I'm like, what? I got to take the face-off. He's like, no, watch this. You know, <laughs> and all of a sudden, Candy walks out there. That was him, right, Candy? And then yep. Hugh walked out there. And then all of a sudden, the face-off happened and the sticks went one way, the gloves were off, helmets were off. And they were going. And I remember, like, Hugh Donovan thinking, like, I got this guy, right? And he throws, like, three yeah, quick Donovan punches. was, like, seven feet tall, and he was right. looked like Adonis. Right. He threw, like, three quick punches and hit him. And Candy was like, that's all you got? And it was, like, one punch and not cued, like, in the next week. Right? It was over quick. <laughs> I think that process started, like, literally, it took two weeks for that process to percolate because they were sitting in a – post-game party in Vancouver and Drew Candy happened to be because he lived in Vancouver or something he was there maybe it was even the summertime and they, they had worked on this whole process that they were gonna uh, Dave Huntley the great organizer right oh yeah was going Hunt to liked, nobody Hunt liked a good fight no oh he loved a it. good fight but he also loved to like he loved to like set stuff up I mean we all know you know, God love him. God rest his soul. Dave Huntley, one of the greatest people in our game. But, man, he had such a passion for, like, needling something into existence, if you will, if he wanted it to happen. And and he, he orchestrated that entire thing. Got Hugh Donovan on the phone with Drew, Drew Candy, Candy, like, like really? two weeks before. Oh they were on speakerphone, and they were yelling at each other and chirping each other. That thing set up two weeks in advance. It was hilarious. I didn't know um, any of that, but I can yeah. see that happening. I remember yeah, we were well, playing, and we're playing. One time we were playing, we're the Pittsburgh Crossfire, and we're playing in Philly, in front of a sold-out crowd. And before the game, he's got me and Reese together, going, "These guys don't respect you. They're telling us how much they hate us, and they're going to go after us all this game." He goes, "From the first face-off, I want to see it out of you guys. You guys, right here, show me what you have." Okay, me and Reese are looking at each other like we're going to kill somebody. We go out there, and I remember it's he's next to Tom Ryan, and I'm next to uh, Finneran. And all of a sudden, I turn over, and he's pulling Ryan's hair. Ryan Reese is pulling Ryan's hair. And I'm all of a sudden, like, putting Finner in and like, punching him. The referee turns around and goes, hey, cut it out. Stop it. We're not going to do this. So he goes back, and all of a sudden, Reese is doing it again. And I'm trying to trying to get – I got Finner in on the ground. It was just like slap shot. He turns around, like, you guys are out of here before the game even starts. Cut it out. You know, and it's all because – I run a clean game here. Right, because right. Huntley got us all fired up to say they didn't respect us and we lost our minds like we're both on the penalty box one minute into the game <laughs> well 
uh, for those people who don't know, Tommy Ryan at the time had dread, big, long dreadlocks. All the way down and so his back, he was yeah. an easy target. Um, <laughs> it, it was funny because Andy Towers talks one story about he was going to get into a game up in Syracuse, and the game was canceled because of of uh of a snowstorm so he first time he's ever andy towers is going to be in the lineup doesn't get into the lineup for the wings because of the snowstorm but he thinks well next week i'm good right i i get to stay in the lineup because nothing changed we didn't play last week because of the snowstorm and so but the wings had done a promotion for rastafarian night so they gave out a bunch of philadelphia wings hats with the hair that came out of it so tom ryan had to play so andy towers was out of the lineup that night oh. so <laughs> yeah, lots of story. Wow. You know what? The one of the, my favorites, you know, the well, Washington Power was a good team and it was a bunch of American guys. I mean, yep. you know, Gary and Paul obviously were were good and we had a Canadian goaltender and you know, yeah, it, there was Neil Doddrich and and Del Halliday who was good, but that team was made up of a bunch of really good American players. Kip Folks who a lot of people, you know, I look at Kip Folks and Josh Sims as kind of the you know similar characters, but Kip, man, Kip was a great player. Like Q, talk about Kip. You know, I mean, he was a he was an unbelievable athlete. Great athlete, one of one of the better athletes that I've been exposed to. I remember him when he was at Maryland. He didn't have big numbers, but and then he shows up at like Team Toyota in the indoor, and you, and you you practice with him, and you're like, this guy's a freak. I mean, he would he would like lap people in any kind of running. He, his intensity in practice, it was, was off the charts. It's one of those, I felt when I showed up for Thunder practice, like Kip was a guy you don't want to mess with because he's going 100%. Him and, him and Tony Millen, I mean, those guys uh, were just always lit and always ready to go. And the funny thing about Kip was he was selling these goofy shirts, these Lycra shirts out of his, out of his trunk, and he really didn't have a job. And we're all kind of like, come on, Kip, when are you going to give it up? Uh, and, and, you know, five years later, he's worth $100 million dollars. Uh, from, from for, for those people that don't know Kip Folks, with Kevin Plank, when, and we were all there kind of people through this process. We were demoing the shirts. We were trying yeah. them out. I and still have one of the originals. Like three shirts. Let's go, guys. Try them out. Like, yeah. Hey. Kip Folks and Kevin Plank started Under Armour out of the garage of one of their grandmothers down in, in D.C., and we were all kind of like, what are you doing? You're selling T-shirts? What? What? And ultimately, you know, God bless him as a sponsor of the National Lacrosse League nowadays. Man, uh, you know, Kip Folks, like I said, or like you said, worth a hundred million dollars, and and uh, and a fascinating character and a great story of an American company that grew from really somebody's garage. Yeah, well, I mean, yeah, yeah, Kip, Tony, and then Rob Sheck. I mean, you, you yeah. have three really, really good athletes. I mean, these these guys could play now uh, and compete. You know, a funny story. Remember, got Joe Hills was on that team. Remember yeah. that guy? Oh my God, he was on that team. I remember him. Story. We're playing like we had a game. Uh, forgets uh, like New York or something like that. This is before nine eleven, and he bought his kids. He was going back to Canada, and he bought his kids laser tech, and he had them in the bag. And we're at the airport, like all hungover, ready to get to play at five a.m. He broke that out. We're playing laser tag in the airport, right? <laughs> at that time, running around the airport, shooting guns at each other, laser tag, and on the plane. Imagine doing that now in the airport. Doing that now, like, else has got his kids' presents out, and we're playing laser tag all over the airport. Hiltzie uh, <laughs> shows up. We're like, yeah, they're bringing in a low lefty to work with Gary. Gary knows him, and here comes this Joe Hiltz guy. We're like, really? Yeah, and, he's, you know, he's, he's overweight. He's well, tiny. But, Who but is hands, this guy? But his hands, he had, his, he had incredible hands around the goal. He might have ended up like leading the league in scoring at some point that year, like. The Baltimore Thunder, 1998, go to the National Lacrosse League Championship, the very first National Lacrosse League Championship, and the wings on the other side, Gary had left, and I was on that team, and, and you guys were around for the 98 championship. It was the best. It was the first best two out of three championship. Yeah. And the game, for those people that don't remember this, the game was played on a Tuesday night because the Baltimore arena wasn't available the following weekend because of some scheduling glitch. So we played Saturday night, and then we ultimately went down on a Tuesday night on a bus from Philly down to play you guys in Baltimore, game two of the best two out of three. But that Baltimore Thunder team was good. Yeah, we were. We had some good guys, yeah, a good team. Jesse Hubbard is on that team, I think, and uh, we had a bunch of good guys. 
the Philly team had uh, Gary Martin still and, and the Billy Miller and that group. Yeah, Gary up. Martin, Billy Miller, Chris Flynn, Chris Bates, Paul O'Grady, yeah. Tony Resch was the coach. Just, you know, that was and that was kind of the end of the run for Philly, correct? That was the uh, that was the end of the quote unquote '90s dynasty. They won again in 2001. Uh, yeah. With kind of a different makeup, Mark Millen ended up there. Tommy Marichek, obviously, we didn't talk about, and uh, I know you guys all know and love and and have been around him for a long time. But uh, Tommy now at IMG Academy and yeah. and running their lacrosse program down there. But the magic hands of Tom Marichek was the '96 championship the one where Gary went off in the spectrum. I think that was the second year. Uh, it was '95 where Gary goes off, but Paul 95. Gate in '94 scored like nine goals against Buffalo in the Buffalo auditorium. And I've told this story before, but the, they were throwing at the end of the game, we get the trophy and they told us to get off the floor. Don't take the trophy on the floor at the end of the game. And people were throwing like pennies at us. And I was grabbing the pennies cause we only got 83 bucks a game. So, um, you know, trying to you know, make a couple extra bucks, but the, uh, yeah, that was an interesting game. You know, Paul Gate turns the, around, the odd, right? Up in Buffalo, the odd. Buffalo auditorium, Paul right. Gate scores like, his seventh goal and everything he's throwing is going in and he turns around with his palms up and goes ah, i don't know but hey you guys can answer this question you both played with them and and watched them and i asked this question early on in in the podcast and other episodes but paul gate does he get a bad rap paul uh no i mean paul paul's as good as there is uh but paul gate gary's the gary gate Right, he's the Michael Jordan of the game. Paul ends up being an afterthought. Yeah, well, I, think that, I think it should be. Well, you go, Paul. I think Gary's just did a better job marketing himself. You know what I mean? Gary's just kind of he's just out there a little bit more. He's a little more. Gary's just a little more outgoing. Where Paul was just a little more reserved, I think. And that's where you may, if you think he has a bad rap, that could be it. But I always saw Paul. He different. Paul shot the hell out of the ball. You give Paul yeah, opportunity to shoot the ball, he shot the hell out of the ball. Gary is just more of a playmaker. He made more things out of nothing than I think Paul did. But I mean, I thought, you know, I played with both of them at times, you know, when we were the Washington Power, we played with both of them. And, you know, they were, they were a handful all the time. And I mean, they were great. I thought they were great teammates. Funny story about them though. I think you might remember this Gov, is that with the power one time we're playing downtown, we were playing in downtown DC and they were put, they were putting the, uh, you can put mics in your helmet. Right. Yeah. And so they're putting mics in their helmet in the locker room. Right. And they're sitting back to back like this, right. Going, Paul, can you hear me? Gary, can you hear me? Back to back. <laughs> of course you can hear me. Of course me. you can hear him. Right here, right? This is far apart from each other. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? <laughs> it's like they, yeah. Well, they talk about innovative. Those those two guys, I mean, Paul Gate especially, and and look, it's well chronicled the innovation of Paul Gate and, and you know, with cascade helmets and the offset head, and there, there's just so many things that Paul has had a hand in. It's uh uh, you know, a lot of things in our game that we can attribute to what, what Paul kind of uh, started. Gary was the first one to kind of dunk it over top of the net, but they were both working on it in practice. Gary just had uh, – he had the balls to do it first. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, the way, they, the way they strung their sticks was, was, was perfection. You could pick up Gary's stick, and, and, and it was just amazingly strong. His, his even-keeled nature uh, being her – like Gary was yep. the same guy every single day, every single practice, every single game. You couldn't rattle him. Mm. Uh, you know, he constantly got beat on. Those guys both took such a, a physical beating. Paul's mm. body, I think, went out on him a little before Gary's. But uh, you know, it's Gary, amazing. His, his elbow would be would be like yep. a grapefruit. Well, it, it, both of them, right? Like you say, they were even keeled. But it didn't matter whether they were scoring, not scoring. You know, positive. You know, stuff going on around whatever it happened to be. They they were they were there. You know, hundred percent all the time. And 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 I I just I laugh when you look back at at these guys that responded or reacted to. You know, they didn't. They had short memories. I always tell my my son when he plays, I go have a short memory because if you miss this one, you know, don't be afraid to take the next one. There was no fear and no memory. And we had, we had an interesting dynamic, Beaner, because, you know, we had an yeah. owner who was a meddling owner who had some interesting <laughs> philosophies about how indoor lacrosse should be played. We had John Tucker. We had Huntley. And then we had Gary. And, and I always thought Gary really balanced helping the American players without being yeah. overbearing, you know, trying yeah. to teach without being bossy and offensive, like, a, like almost in a Michael Jordan type of way. And Gary had a, had a 
a, a really nice timing in terms of when, when he would pick and choose to step up and say, hey, guys, we should do it this way or set the, set the pick at this angle, that kind of thing. Another quick break. Coronado Brewing Company is proud to be the official craft beer partner of the Seals. Enjoy fan favorite Orange Avenue Wit and their new Salty Crew Blonde Ale all season long and visit coronadobrewing.com to find their award-winning beers near you. Stay coastal. Cheers. Just changing gears a little quick. I want you guys to get quick reactions, quick hitter reactions to the names I'm going to say. Um, and so we'll do this as, as quickly as we can. Kevin, uh, Kevin Finneran. Lefty laser. Slick. slick kid. Slick player. Uh, Peter Jacobs. Uh, fierce. Bloody knees. He's just lanky, man. He's a tough, he's a tough guard. Tough guy. He's always a tough guy for me to play. Peter, I, I respected him. The, this one may not be so quick. And, and Quint, I want you to talk a little bit about your relationship with him, but uh, especially uh, on the Thunder. But Tony Millen. Who? Tony Millen. Gift, gifted, gifted athlete, a uh, guy who could play at, at a, with a ferocity that very few could match off the field. He was a, he was a wild man. I, I roomed with him uh, that, that year that I played for the Thunder. I mean, there was a trip. We went up to Toronto. We check in. I set up the room. Next thing you know, poof, he's gone. I wake up the next morning. He's not there yet. Like 9 a.m., I'm drinking my coffee, reading the paper. He comes home, sleeps the rest of the day, and we play that night. <laughs> and he was running circles around people. Uh, remember one game. I remember one game with Tony. Where like Dennis is on the bench because Dennis is, you know, he's a coach. Babe. He's the owner, so he's on the bench. Tony got a penalty, and Dennis is like, "You got to stop it, Tony. No more penalties. You got another penalty. Dennis, like, you're benched. You're done. You you can't do that." Tony is on his knees, going, "Dennis, I promise I will not get another penalty. I won't get any more penalties. I promise." Right? He goes back out there like clockwork. Got another he, penalty. Was he literally? He was begging, right? Like he, he was, was like literally on his knees, please going, "Please!" Right? And then after the game, he got back there, and Dennis <laughs> caught him right in the spot. Like right there, he was like, "You're done." <laughs> All right, next guy, Tim Sudan. Awesome. I thought Timmy was always a great American. Awesome. Yeah, I got a guy I go pretty far back with pseudo at some high school things, I think. Uh, and then when he was at UMass, uh, all around player, leader, really, really well loved and respected by his teammates. And he's currently a PLL coach. Yeah. Just got named to the PLL as a head coach, right? So that's I think he exciting. He does a great job in the pro game. He's got a great mentality for those guys. You know, he, when an MLL coach in the Rochester team and all those guys, he always did an outstanding job. Uh, next guy, John Tavares. Oh, incredible talent. I mean, the passing, passing and, and a, a nasty streak that few could match. He was, it always embarrassed me every time I played him. I hate him. <laughs> In some I hate way, him. I hated, I hated him. I did. Every time I played him, I hated him. I remember playing, and he was a great player. I remember playing Buffalo one time. He's out there. I'm in the penalty box, right? I came out. I went right for him. Cross-checked him back into the boards, got ejected. I, I did anything I could to get a hold of him. But he always lit me up. He was a great player. <laughs> He, he and he for a long time, for a long, long time. Yeah, he did it for a long time. Jamie Hanford, the booger, the man cub, the legend, junkyard, he's a, junkyard dog, man, a scrapper, the lax rat, man. He loves lax. He's Love a lax rat. Great teammate. How about Reggie Thorpe, who, current head coach of the U.S. Uh, the U.S. team. Uh, and, and a recent head coach in the National Cross League, just uh, news last week that he got let go from the New York uh, Riptide. But uh, Reggie Thorpe. I think Reggie made himself a really good indoor defender. I mean, he's really physical, uh, fierce, like wouldn't back down to anybody, threw his body around, and, and would never back down from any, any kind of corner skirmish. I mean, he just he, the guy checked harder than anybody I know. Anytime he checked you, it felt like my arm was going to get just fall <laughs> off. He he checked so hard, and it was like nothing. He just went like this far, and it just hurt so much. Yeah, he he turned. He's a great player. I loved him. He played hard all the time. That's what I remember. Hey, I want to switch gears real quick and talk. Uh, so I ask everybody this question because one day we're going to start producing these shows. Um, and it can be any topic, fellas, whether it's pro indoor, pro outdoor, college, whatever the story is. If if you had a chance to produce a 30 for 30 in the world of lacrosse, 
historical or otherwise. Um, obviously, the Last Dance, and everybody watched the Last Dance with Michael Jordan and and the Bears. Sorry, the Bears. The <laughs> shows you what I know about basketball. But uh, the Chicago Bulls um, and, and Michael Jordan, Scottie Pippen, Dennis Rodman, Phil Jackson, all those guys. Great you know, kind of Sunday night destination television, what 30 for 30 would you guys, what story would you tell in a 30 for 30? I, I, you could definitely do one about the MILL mid nineties and, and, and centered around the wings and the crowds that they were drawing at the spectrum and the characters on the team and Gary, and just, just how this one little franchise of whether it be uh, you know, roller derby or bowling or, you know, in, in Philly and the, why it worked and why the fans gravitated to it and what it became. Yeah, I think did, I, I thought did, really, you know that, did you know that the wings sold out the spectrum like, you know, yeah. three years in a row? Yeah. <laughs> you know, games canceled because the building caught on fire. I would do one like in Chopper in Philly. I think that'd be a great one to do in Chopper and all his, and he's still there, I think, with the Philly fans. Do you yeah, know he's still there. I mean, Really? I think you can do do that one in the Kilgore brothers. You know, that'd be an interesting one. You know, if you did all in the Kilgore brothers and their inference and, and with that, uh, I think it would be a great one if you if you did um did one on like the the first Pittsburgh franchise. When I hear those guys were crazy when they played the first one in Pittsburgh, that first franchise, I hear they were all over the place. What about the turbos? Uh, the turbos or the Detroit turbos, yeah, absolutely. So I think those would be really good ones. But I think the bigger one you probably do is just how did that league even get off the ground? You know, how did this come about? Because it wasn't – I mean, I can't believe you're like, hey, we're going to go get these guys out there in hockey jerseys and spandex. Let's see how this works out. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, let's see how that plays out, you know, so. How about in college lacrosse, Quinn? I'm curious if you could – if you could, you're, you're a storyteller and, and you craft narratives all the time. Over the years, if you look back in college lacrosse, what, what would be the story you would tell? Wow, that's, that's a tough one. Uh I mean, each, each year is defined by te- dominant teams. Uh, you know, Bob Carpenter is putting together a documentary right now that's really good about, about the, the growth of the game through the I've eyes seen it. Of, of, of the stick. You, you've seen it, Steve? Yeah, yeah. I've seen it's it. Really, it's really very good. good. I, I, what fascinated me, honestly, from that was the Native American lacrosse footage from the res, like the outdoor summer box where the cars would drive up. And the pictures yep. from those games and the video from those games, I thought was like, wow, this, this is amazing stuff. It's and a uniquely that, that North American exists. story, right? Uh, Native American summer box lacrosse and, and the way they've been playing for decades and decades. Like, tell me, do a documentary about that. Well, I, I certainly have – I think we all do have a special place in our hearts for the, the Iroquois Nation and, and their, you know, confederacy and, and what they did for our game. I, I know every guy that's been around this game his whole life like we have has a special place in their heart, you know, for, for that indigenous nation and the, and the culture that they have brought to our game. And, and quite, quite frankly, a forgotten people in a lot of areas, we don't forget them because every day we pick up a stick, we honor them. But at the end of the day, uh, I th- what's fascinating to me about their culture is that every World Games, they put you know, a really super competitive team on the field and they, their players permeate pro lacrosse, whether it's indoor or outdoor, doesn't matter, um, college lacrosse, whatever. But there's not there's such a small population that they're drawing from to be able to field these teams that are competing with superpowers, right, in Canada and the U.S. And, and the number of players and the resources that Canada and the U.S. put towards, you know, pro lacrosse and, and otherwise and international lacrosse. And these guys trot out with a, a relatively small population of people and are competitive in a way that, you know, it honors the game. And, and so for me, um, especially with current events, uh, you know, acknowledging them and understanding and wanting to understand their culture better. Um, I, I got to tell you, it, it's a people that we need to, to pay more attention to. Yeah, I think it's a, I think it's the most positive trend in the game right now. You know, we talk about how we've grown and we, and the sport has across the country, the demographics, the same, our diversity is not good yet in the last 25 years, uh, you know, for whatever reason, the, the Native American aspects of the game have been rekindled and have become giant. And I don't know when that happened, but 
but it was a big, big positive. Probably has a lot to do with the Thompson brothers, I, I think, personally. And look, look, there's some great players that have, have come before them and are still playing or kind of blazed the trail for them. But, but uh, you know, Red Burnham, who we all know and, and love and, you know, was a part of our, our culture. Yeah, and the pro See, I, think it, I think it trades back to the World Games, honestly, because in that 98 games, even though the U.S.-Canada final was, was off the charts and an amazing moment, the, the Iroquois team, they became the sentimental favorite in Baltimore. Yeah, and have continued to be the sentimental favorite, carrying through, you know, the 2014 games, and obviously they, they missed out, you know, challenges with 2010 in, in Manchester and, and almost in Israel this last run, and, and knowing the, the massive story that it was to get them there, um, you know, into Israel and, and be able to play and get them back. And, and the fact that Justin Trudeau had to get involved and, and make sure he was, you know, they, they do become the sentimental favorite in our game. And, and, you know, the challenges of being on the, on the Canadian side, when you play the Iroquois is, is that everybody's cheering for the Iroquois, but they're all picking up Woody's um, long pole Woody's to play against the Canadians. Cause they just want to beat the living shit out of you. <laughs> <laughs> so hurt. yeah they do well fellas hey it's been uh it's been a massive pleasure uh i loved having your perspective and talking to you guys and it's been way too long uh in the connection and and so i really appreciate uh all all of your stories and your thoughts and thank you uh for joining the tfl podcast and and uh and being a guest man thank you so much it's been it's really been fun thanks for having us it was awesome thank you so much thanks Steve. All right. Episode eight in the books. Loved having these guys. Uh, come back and see us. Watch the TFL Kitchen. You can learn a little bit about how to cook. And so one day we're going to talk about lacrosse on the TFL Kitchen. Fellas, if you haven't seen my cooking show, you should really go see my cooking show. Anyway, all good. Thanks. We'll see you next time.